1: I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today we'll be talking with Carrie Lynn Stone, author of Pains of the Glass Ceiling The Unspoken Beliefs Behind the Law Spell You to Help Women Achieve Professional Parity. How are you doing today? I'm
0: fine, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here and very grateful to you for inviting me. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you. I wonder if you could start by telling the audience a little something about yourself and how you got started on this project.
0: Thank you. Um, I am a law professor at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. And my research agenda since I started teaching, and my teaching package also has involved employment law and specifically employment discrimination. So I examine in my scholarly articles the laws, uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, anti-discrimination laws, protected class status, and how they work and how they function and whether they work and function as a society would want them to. And so my interest has always been in sort of trying to inject realism into courts analyses. So looking at what courts see when they look at a situation, when they find something actionable to have occurred versus when they don't, what claims can be brought versus what claims can't be brought, how the courts interpret the law, and see what's being captured, what's falling through the cracks, and what operational or workplace realities are or aren't being recognized, understood, and captured in this process. So writing the book was a very natural extension of my legal scholarship because I figured that there are people outside the law who are students of societal change, and law and society, and policy who might be interested in gaining a more refined understanding of what's going on, where the failures are, or the perceived failures, um, where the battlegrounds are being drawn, and um, what we as a society um, should be doing or could be doing to make things look more the way we want them to look,
1: which is the goal of law and regulation. unspoken belief, tell us about this in regards to gender. So my book is
0: really framed and organized in terms of so-called unspoken beliefs. And this is an idea that has really fascinated me for a long time, because I would write an article about, let's say, bullying in the workplace and how it's not unlawful, but it may disproportionately affect women in very subtle ways. Like That's an example of something I would write. And what the book enabled me to do was sort of look underneath the failures that I was pointing out in my legal scholarship and say, What societal beliefs are we as a society clinging on to, or at least exist across a spectrum in society? What beliefs are driving whatever's happening, whether it is the failure of the legislature to pass a law, whether it is the failure of a court to interpret the law in a given way that would yield a certain result, even personal failures of HR departments that add uh, what I call these metaphorical pains of the glass ceiling and of course the title is a play on words panes of the glass ceiling But it really is a protracted metaphor if you think about a glass ceiling as This notion that you're limited right that because of your status as a woman or anything else you may be limited You can see the Sun you can look up But there's at a certain point going to be this this physical barrier that you can't penetrate and my theory is that there are it's sort of like death by a thousand paper cuts. There are all of these layers of institutional failures that contribute to the glass ceiling. And if you conceptualize them as panes of glass layered atop one another at a certain point, it's not even transparent. It becomes opaque. The light can't even come through. So I conceptualized what are these unspoken beliefs? What beliefs that are so ugly and taboo that people would never really mostly say them or cop to having them? But at some level, do subscribe to, and this is fueling and feeding societal attitudes, what laws are getting passed, how certain words are being interpreted, what behavior is being regulated, kind of looking underneath
1: um, at these unspoken beliefs. Metrics of success. And how women stack up to this raw skill at work. You talked about that. What is meant by that?
0: So when we look at metrics and we're trying to gauge workplace equality, um, there have been countless studies, I mentioned a lot of them in the book, about, you know, what women earn versus men on the dollar, right? Women not being paid the same as men for doing substantially the same work. Um, You look at, for example, large organizations and you look at the representation of women and other minority groups. Um, on boards of directors or in the C-suite, and you see who's present and who's less represented. And we have consistently seen that women, although being you know more than half of the population and now being an increasing number, often more than half of the number of students in graduate programs all over the country, are somehow still woefully underrepresented at the highest levels of power, prestige, compensation, and influence
1: in American workplaces. Tell us about the Hopkins case and how important it is. So the Hopkins
0: case was a Supreme Court case that was decided in 1989. It's a really interesting case that I've spent a good deal of my career writing about and thinking about. In that case, you had a woman, Ann Hopkins, who was a partner or who wanted to be a partner, I should say, at a major accounting firm. And there were, you know, sort of the, this this mixed perception of her, whereby she had accomplished a lot, but her personality was a little bit difficult. And under ordinary principles of at-will employment, the employer would retain the absolute right to not bring her on board as a partner, to not promote her for reasons that were non-discriminatory, such as her personality didn't gel with the rest of the group or people found her off-putting or whatever. The problem was in this particular case, which took place during the 80s, her evaluation and her interviews were all written down And the people writing the evaluations were not shy about saying a lot of what I'm talking about in the book, right? The quiet part out loud. So she received evaluations in writing that said she was too masculine. She needed to walk more femininely, talk more femininely, wear more makeup, wear high heels, wear more feminine clothes. It was very obvious she was too masculine of a woman for these people. And that it was even said that, that her personality, if she had been a man, and she were as aggressive and direct as she were would be fine. But on a woman, it just didn't look the same way. And this was overt and explicit in the evaluations. The Supreme Court found that she had established a case of sex discrimination. And in the course of doing so, the court recognized that evidence of sex-based stereotyping was evidence of sex discrimination. And it didn't mean that every time you have a stereotype present in a case that it was automatically going to be a winner of a case. But the court acknowledged this is pretty strong evidence that someone is being discriminated against. And this blew up into a whole host of of questions. What does this mean? If somebody claims, oh, I said this, but I used the wrong word. But you know what I meant. And what I meant is sort of this very neutral critique. you know, that, what do you do with that? If something is considered, you know, it was just a misspeak or it was just a, a one-off thing that I said, but it had nothing to do with the, the substance of the decision. So all of these questions started to come up and lots of future plaintiffs that had things said to them or perceived that things were, they were being looked at in certain ways started to come forward with claims and courts were very unclear about what it took to be the next Anne Hopkins, quote unquote. But I have a chapter in the book Um, And again, each chapter is named after a different unspoken belief. And the chapter is called, We See You Differently Than We See Men. Now, people would never really say that. That's certainly not in the workplace. It's not something people want to admit. But to the extent that you're looking at someone through a different lens because of their protected class status, that really is problematic in terms of protected class
1: discrimination and ought to be acknowledged as such, although a lot of times it isn't. In Chapter 2, you talk about the belief that women in the workplace should just toughen up. Does this harm women?
0: So I absolutely think it does. Um, The unspoken belief I identified there, I apologize for that. I thought I fixed it. Um, The unspoken belief that I had identified there was one that said, um, we expect you to take your verbal punches like a man. And again, you know, deliberately overstated in a way that nobody would probably formulate the sentence, but it's lurking there in the background. And this really has to do with this notion that workplace bullying is, and this is the state of the law now, it's considered neutral, it's considered lawful, workplaces don't have to tolerate it, but they don't have to do anything about it either. As long as it's not because of sex, because of race, et cetera, et cetera, so-called status-neutral bullying is lawful. And what I've argued in my scholarship and research and in this book is that the status-neutral bullying being lawful operates to harm women. And it does so on on multiple levels. There have been a lot of studies that show that women are more often targeted than men for so-called status-neutral bullying. There are studies that show that women as a group, and I'm generalizing here, so obviously take this as the generalization it is, Women are acculturated and acclimated from the time that they're socialized, from the time they're very small, to a handle abuse, criticism, rejection, a variety of things in a very particular way. And that modality of handling those things in the workplace is very often not as well received as the modality of handling things that boys are taught to do when it comes to absorbing critiques, criticism, abuse um conflict, all of those things. So you create a situation where the way that boys are taught and these boys grow into men help them flourish. And the way girls are taught cause them to be seen in a more like negative light, cause them to shrink back from opportunity, advancement, and mentoring, and cause them to fall behind
1: for all of those reasons. Lack of advancement opportunities. Now when women um return after having a baby. You talk about the leaky pipeline and burnout. Tell us about that.
0: So um, in this country, we have certain laws. Um, we have the uh, Family Medical Leave Act, for example, that does provide a minimum, a, a, or sorry, maximum amount of time for women and men to take if they are taking care of someone else, um, ill themselves, having or adopting a baby. So there is this sort of space. Um, and yet, and many women will tell you, it's not enough. So you have scenarios where the 12 weeks runs out and someone's not ready to come back. And now that's all the employer was required to give. The law's is floor, not a ceiling. So they're going to be cut off from employment. It's also not required that the employer pay the employee for that time. So a lot of people feel stress and pressure to return back to work really soon, sooner than they're often physically, emotionally, or otherwise able to. And so a lot of times you have women um, specifically returning to work after giving birth, and maybe they're dealing with an inflexible workplace that's not allowing them that the time that they need to be with their family. Maybe they're dealing with workplace bullying that maybe didn't bother them as much before, but now it just makes the workplace more intolerable. A lot of times you have women siphoning or winnowing themselves out of the workplace and they'll tell you, you know, I, did, I didn't want to go back. I just, I took time off and I don't want to go back. I'm going to be with my family. And that is a fine, fine choice if it is completely volitional. But if that choice is being coerced by these other factors, by the law's lack of requirements for tolerance, for accommodation, for, you know, a bullying-free environment, all of those things, then maybe it's not totally a volitional choice for everybody, and that is problematic.
1: Locker room talk. Tell us about the example you gave of the woman who cut her hair and the reaction.
0: Yeah, so when we look at sexual harassment under the law, under Title Seven, um... Sexual harassment is actionable. You can absolutely sue for it, but there are requirements that have to be met. And this makes sense because you wouldn't want every single affront that occurs in the workplace to result in literally a federal case and something being actionable. So, under the law, you are required to show that harassment was because of protected class status, that it was severe or pervasive, that it affected the individual plaintiff and her ability to get her work done. That it would have affected a reasonable person situated in the plaintiff's shoes, and that there's a basis for imputing liability to the employer. If you have those things, um, there are some defenses, but more or less you you can make out a claim. Now, this idea of harassment having to be severe or pervasive is to prevent, I guess, floodgates, you know, from opening in too many cases and 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 minor cases and things that don't rise to the level. So courts work to ascertain mm-hmm. That this is because of sex, that it is severe or pervasive, that it really does affect the person. and all of these things need to be met for something to be actionable. But what this does is it leaves this space where we have comments that, for one reason or another, they fail to rise to the level. Maybe there aren't enough of them. Maybe a judge doesn't consider them severe enough. It depends on on the comments on the scenario. And yet, And maybe they're not directed to the woman directly herself. Maybe they're comments that are made about women generally. And the judge that you're in front of says, well, that's not because of your sex. That person says that kind of stuff all the time to whoever's around. And for whatever reason, the claim will fail. And yet you have an environment, you have a workplace where you have this very quiet erosion of self-esteem, of desire to be there, right, of wherewithal. Um, so I wrote, I, I gave a couple of stories and examples, but one was, you know, a woman who had, um, I, I think I, I think what you're talking about, she had cut her hair and, and her boss, like, you know, again, like joking around with her said something like, oh, I always like, you know, women's hair to be below their bra line. And, 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 and she, you know, I interviewed a lot of people for the book and this particular woman said to me, it was weird and it made me feel uncomfortable around him. She said he didn't, he didn't proposition me. He didn't say stuff like that to me every day. Um, but it made me uncomfortable. It was a signifier to me. You are different. I look at you in a different way than I would look at a male associate. And yet, she's an attorney, and she and I both knew there's absolutely no way that something like that alone would ever rise to the level of an actionable claim. Nor would she necessarily want it to, because if you're working somewhere, you know, it, it's a very hard decision to make to to go forward with with a federal claim. It's a very large fracture line in one's career and one's Um, tenure at one place, maybe. So there's a lot to think about. But it's it's these little sort of stray comments here and there that may not rise to the level of acclaim that affect a real subtle but but erosion um, of a way in which a woman sees herself as a professional like any other one there at the
1: office. Do women move through the world with full agency?
0: So that's another one of the beliefs that I articulated. And again, these are meant to be sort of provocative and they're definitely meant to represent things that most people would not articulate out loud. That's the whole point. And I and again, I don't mean to suggest that everybody out there subscribes to this belief, or even that those who subscribe to it subscribe to it in that to that full extent. So the idea there is that, you know, we we tell women, you know, everyone's the same in the workplace, we respect you. Um it's it's an unspoken presumption. Of course, we would never tell a woman that she, we don't respect her agency. And yet there are all kinds of incursions into women's agency in the workplace. We police, for example, the women's professional dress. There are studies that show that if you're in a professional workplace, there are a lot more memoranda going around that will instruct and police and restrict what's acceptable for women than there are similar strictures for men. So, there are all kinds of um facets to Hr departments, policies, and even in the law, I write about some facets of sexual harassment law whereby the courts aren't necessarily treating women like they have full agency when it comes to certain things. And i I don't know how much you want to get into it, but basically, it has to do with the idea of a woman who comes to court alleging sexual harassment. and she has said, yes, she has capitulated to the requests of her. Harasser, um, The court treats those women differently from women who allege a constructive discharge, whereby the law acknowledges that they've been forced out of their job. And in some ways, you could argue that the law treats the women who capitulate a little bit better because they say, well, that's such a horrible thing that you were forced to endure um, to be with your harasser, um, to have intimacy with your harasser. And yet we treat coerced choices differently depending on the nature of those choices. And I've written a lot about women and agency and where these discrepancies show up and more importantly, why they show up. And for me, it comes down to a belief subscribed to at some level on some level of consciousness that women may not be moving through the world with the same degree of agency as their male counterparts in some people's eyes.
1: Chapter five, you talk about women being the downfall of men. And you gave us the example of the Washington Post report on Mike Pence's statement. It's funny, man.
0: Yeah, so this is a perfect example of a belief I've identified that I don't think is held consistently, right, throughout society. So to the extent that this is a prevalent or pervasive belief, I think it's held to different degrees and for different reasons. And I'll kind of run through that. So again, I stated it in the most provocative way possible because nobody would say that. Women are the downfall of men. And as as the opening illustration, I pointed to the Vice President's comment, "I would never be seen, you know, at night at a professional event alone with a woman who was not my wife." And it came off a little bit as somewhat virtue signaling, I think. um and and I think there were a lot of people who were very um, admirers of of this sentiment and and thought that it was a very respectful thing to say. and it It signified to them that he was a certain type of man who respected his wife. That's fine. But what lurks under that and what are the effects of that? So I started doing research into this idea that there are men on Wall Street, on Madison Avenue, um, in boardrooms, in fact, everywhere, who are for one reason or another unwilling to be alone with women. So you may have someone who will have a female... um, like a female associate into his office for a review or an evaluation but will make a big again virtue signaling show of saying we won't close the door we'll leave that open in other words I respect you you can feel safe like all of these sort of um, messages and what's the result of that maybe that woman doesn't get the same hard level scathing feet to the fire review that her male counterpart gets because for whatever reason Maybe the the man is afraid to spend too much time with her. And why is he afraid? So this is, again, this is the spectrum of the belief. He may be afraid that something's going to happen between them. But that's not necessarily most men. He may be afraid that she's going to allege that something happened between them, even though nothing did, for some vindictive reason. He may be afraid that nothing will happen, but that people will see her coming out of his office, maybe even coming out of his office upset after an intense meeting, and people will get the wrong idea, and people will gossip. Um, So again, this this exists across the site for a variety of reasons. And especially in the wake of the Me Too movement, you have studies that show more and more men having this this fear, this this very palpable fear of what people would say or think of them if they extended an invitation to a woman, a a female um, colleague, to go to a professional event. Now, what happens when they don't do that? The women don't get the exposure, the access, the entree to clients, to opportunities, to socialize with the upper level people at work. They miss out on mentoring opportunities. They miss out on the full experience of a closed door review, whatever that is for their their male counterparts. And it's not necessarily measurable or, or palpable in that moment. But over time, when you exclude women from these spaces because of this fear of this imaginary threat, whether it's a threat of seduction or a threat of, you know, someone's going to fabricate something, or even just the threat of like a threes Company style misunderstanding, you're you're really robbing some someone of something because of this this phantom thing that doesn't even really exist. So I think we need to take a closer look at statements like that. We need to look at how widespread this fear of being Alone or being seen out dining a lot when you go out dining or to a professional event with someone who's mentoring you or your colleague, there are opportunities there. There are opportunities to get to know them on different levels, to meet clients perhaps, to, to, to gain access or information about what's going on at work. And the exclusion of women from these spaces is certain to harm them. This is of all the beliefs, the one I think we have, we've come the closest to people really admitting publicly And a lot of people will admit it, like Mike Pence does, as by way of virtue signaling, trying to claim that it's a good thing. And and I I respect the Vice President very much, but I disagree with that statement, that that's a good thing for the workplace. And some people will say it, and this came out a lot in the studies of Wall Street, in this very self-protective way. I have to protect myself. And the idea is, it's an immense privilege to be able to deprive someone else of something, of an opportunity, so that you can protect yourself from an invisible non-existent phantom threat. And we have to weigh really what's at stake there when that occurs.
1: So do you think that there's a solid backlash to the at Me Too movement?
0: There absolutely is. And I was surprised when I did the research on how many people who were surveyed, even if it was an anonymous survey, were willing to admit it, that Me Too made them nervous. It made them nervous about their own behavior. It made them nervous about how they were perceived. and. um I think we have to look at that and I think we have to look at the effects of that because, again, um, a lot of these fears are just simply unfounded. If you're acting in a professional way and you're interacting with a female colleague the exact same way you would interact with a male colleague, there's no rational reason to think that, um, you know, that that's going to be your downfall.
1: You know, in Chapter 6, you said, just be grateful that you're there. Do you think women endure this type of hostility? What's going on?
0: So, I don't know that it's a hostility, but again, I phrased it provocatively, and the belief is just be grateful that you're there. So the idea is, we. so what are the manifestations of this belief? How do we see it in action? My research showed that we talk a lot about... Um, the workplace being a sort of second family. People joke about work wives and work husbands. And people do spend you know, an increasing amount of time and energy in the workplace such that it, it can be an apt analogy in certain circumstances. But what research has found is that women often get saddled with what's called office housework or emotional labor. So office housework has to do with the fact that it's not always random when someone gets assigned, hey, can you clean up after the party? Hey, can you bring in cookies to go to the party? Hey, can you um, visit, you know, we're going to go out and we meet with this new client and try to nail down this deal. Can you stay back behind with the summer associates and, you know, take down a list of all their needs and complaints and meet with them? So that you're getting assigned work that needs to be done around the office, but it tends to be more of like a literal office housekeeping. Um, of the nature that's been traditionally ascribed to women in the domestic sphere for years and not to men. Um, the other thing is women tend to report getting saddled, and a lot of times it, it, there's not an awareness that this is happening, but with what's called emotional labor. So there's some kind of blow up in the boardroom or blow up in the break room, and someone storms out, and it's either requested or expected that a woman is going well, why to, why don't you go see if he's okay? Why don't you go see if she's all right? Why don't you go talk to her? I'm not I'm not good at that. And women report all over the country, report being disproportionately burdened with taking care and managing the feelings and expectations of those around them, both in this sort of more formal way that I just mentioned, or even informally in the course of conversations with their colleagues, that they are expected more than men in different ways than men to manage the feelings and the expectations of those around them. And the sentiment behind that, the unspoken belief for me, the natural outgrowth of that, was this messaging of you know what you're in the office you're one of the vps so what if you're setting up you know for the party so what if if we kind of expect you to you know to stroke the ruffled feathers of of someone or you know be in charge of the summer associate program you're good at that kind of stuff just be grateful that you're there and um again deleterious
1: effects fear of retaliation Do we still have women who fail to report the sexual harassment because of that?
0: Absolutely. And I think some of the more high-profile cases that we've seen, a lot of them coming out of the Me Too movement, show that this kind of really, I mean, talk about bad behavior, even criminal behavior sometimes, was shrouded in secrecy in some of the most elite spaces in the world. On Wall Street, Hollywood, I apologize again, on Wall Street, in Hollywood, um, you have these very, very, it turned out to be powerful men that were getting away with literal, actual crimes, and nobody was saying anything because they had shrouded themselves with, you know, concentric circles of secrecy, of people who were too afraid to lose their own standing if they spoke up, of um, people who, who felt threatened in some way if they spoke up. Um, And and then layers around them of people who just didn't know, but to shroud themselves in that and and the privilege of being able to do that um, because they could make or break someone's career.
1: In Chapter 7, you talk about the burden of impending motherhood. Tell us about what's going on in the work environment with motherhood.
0: So again, it, the, the, the traditional party line now in today's day and age is, you know, if you want women in the workplace, you've got to support motherhood in the workplace because most women at some point in their lives, not all, but most women become mothers. Um, and that happens particularly during certain um, phases of life and, ten, you know, within certain age ranges usually. And the party line is that that's wonderful. It's a blessing. We're here for you. Take your leave. Come back. We support you. Go you. But the reality often is that if you peer underneath at the unspoken part, you can see in the policies, in the attitudes, in the workplace failures to help pregnant women and mothers of young children succeed is this belief that you're the idea that you're a mother, that you have little kids, that you're pregnant is sort of rationally inconvenient to us. It's, you know, it's like this extra burden that you're imposing on us. You need to go and pump milk in your office, and that takes you out of the conference room this many times a day. Or you're going to take, you know, more of your sick days, even if they're allotted, than you used to because your child has to go to the pediatrician or has a dance recital or whatever it is. And rationally speaking, this detracts from perhaps productivity, perhaps the bottom line, continuity, And again, you see the range of beliefs. You see men who will outwardly just, or women, who will outwardly just make a face if you tell them, you know, you're going to pump milk in the middle of the workday. And they they think that's very distasteful, maybe. Um, Or people who just acknowledge at a very rational level, I fully support you, but it's going to be hard to train people to be here when you're not. And that kind of stinks. So... The messaging outwardly may be we support women, we have women partners, we want you all to live your best life and have work life balance. But the unspoken piece, and you often see that manifested in actions, in po- policies, in practices, is don't burden us with your impending motherhood. Women work in the
1: pandemic. What happened?
0: So we think a lot of interesting things came out of that era. And I think we're going to be learning more and more about how that's going to permanently change the face of the American workplace as we knew it for quite some time. Um, so a couple, I mean, I, I could talk about a couple of things. First of all, everybody was relegated to their house. So that that became, our world got very small and everything still had to get done. Everything domestic that often women disproportionately shoulder anyway at home you know, had to still get done while work got done. So you had stories like the, you know, very enduring stories, like the reporters who have their kids in the background inadvertently. You had me teaching my law school class with my pre-K daughter in the background, you know, sometimes singing her little songs. And, and a lot of it was unavoidable, but it, I think it really showed us. It really gave us all glimpses into one another's lives to see the struggle, to see how much some people are doing. Um, and I, th- I think that was very eye-opening for a lot of people. I think another big effect of the pandemic was that it made people realize that we have um, we have the capacity, we have the ability to afford not everybody. Um, it depends on your job and on your functioning and, and what's needed, but definitely more flexibility, um, generally speaking, to workers who want to have remote work, who want to have part time hours, who want to balance things in very unconventional ways. We saw that when it needed to get done, it was able to get done. And so a lot of things that people used to ask for before the technology allowed it and even after the technology allowed it what people just thought, oh, but that's not going to work. We saw that it could work, that it was possible. And I think that's very instructive as we move forward and start to tackle unspoken beliefs.
1: The belief that he has a family to support. Did this idea generate during the Great Depression?
0: Yes, yes. Um, So again, you know, the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964 and prior to that it was not unlawful to overtly discriminate um, in a variety of ways and very explicitly and overtly. Um, So people were much more comfortable sort of saying what is now the quiet part out loud back then. So we saw this idea, um, and and we saw there there are shifts over time in history. Also, that um, when the men went to war, the women stepped in. When the men came back from war, the women were expected to go back. You, know, you see the movie A League of Their Own. You know, you, you can kind of see that. Um, but the traditional attitudes, and I think I have a quote in the book um, from the Secretary of Labor um, back in in the day in the thirties, just about this this idea very explicitly spoken. One of the few moments in the book where we talk about just this explicit admission. Of uh, yeah, women can work if they want, I guess, but your supplemental income, right? We envision in this country, this, this is what was what, you know, what was sort of conveyed by a lot of people very publicly. We envision a, you know, a a two parent household and there's a mom and there's a dad and they live together with a nuclear family, and the dad is the breadwinner and he's the serious one, and he's the one that has to earn the living. And if a woman wants to work and she can get all her tasks done otherwise I, you know, or she doesn't have kids yet, I guess that's okay. But that's a hobby job. That's, that's supplemental. That's for gratification. That, that, that's for fun. Um, and it's amazing when you go back and you look at some of the quotes that, that, that came out of that era. Um, but then you see the vestiges of that attitude today. And you look at things like pay disparities. Um, and sometimes you even do hear people say, you know, I had to give it to one of you and I know he's supporting a family and that's rare, but it happens. Um, the other thing I bring up in the book that I think is important that they, I always was looking for evidence. I can't just allege that these beliefs exist. So what you find in the book are discussions of sort of the evidence that I found, whether it's statistical studies, whether it's anecdotal interviews, um, famous you know, quotes from from famous people. Um, but. But kind of comprehensive evidence that these beliefs do exist and that they are feeding, fueling, and fomenting these institutional failures. And one of the things I discuss in the book was um, when Harvard Law decided to let women in, Uh, very famously, they would only let a few, right? So there are hundreds of law students and just this little tiny handful of women as, you know, these pioneers in the class. And the dean used to meet with the women separately and grill them individually and say, I hope you understand. The gravity of this you are taking a man's spot can you justify that are you okay with that are you going to carry that mantle because someone got rejected because you're here and he has a family to support and just that kind of onus they were i tell my students all the time in law school there used to be women's days the only days during the month when women were allowed to speak because their presence was seen as sort of gravy for for fun um, so it, it's important to remember, you know, how far we have come in such a short time that our voices weren't even welcome in classrooms on a daily basis not that long ago. Um, so that really, to me, was sort of underscored by this unspoken belief of, well, he has a family to support, so fill in the blank. We're going to pay him more. He is more welcome here. You need to justify your existence. And we see that manifest, unfortunately, in so many ways.
1: Chapter 9 bad people don't do good things, but good people frequently say bad things. Tell us more.
0: So I I was just talking to my students about this today. I think a lot of the ways the law is set up, and people may not be as familiar with the law, the way my students are becoming, the law presupposes very cartoonish people, very two-dimensional ways of, of how people act, predictors of how people will act, and they don't necessarily line up with or comport with reality. So, for example, um, and this is where I get into sort of reiterating some of my critiques from my legal scholarship about some of the the doctrines at work um, used by courts in adjudicating employment discrimination disputes. So, for example, there's something called the same actor inference that's been around in the law forever. And it is a rebuttable, I want to be fair, it's a rebuttable presumption that if the same person brings someone on board and mentors them and then turns around and fires them later, we start off with a rebuttable presumption that it was not because of, in this case, in, in the case of my book, their sex. It could also be their skin color, their religion, whatever they're alleged to be discriminating on the basis of. And that really only makes sense if you have a very cartoonish view of people that either you're a, you know, black and white, either you're a good person who brings in, you know, someone from a protected class and wants them in the workplace and mentors them. And if you let them go, it had to be for a good non-discriminatory reason. Or you're a bad person who never would have done those things in the first place. And we know that's not true. Operational realities, um, nuanced understandings, facts and statistics, controvert this. So, for example, we know there are people who will only hire members of certain groups because they're engaging in tokenism or because they want the workplace to seem diverse, or because they're feeling pressure from somewhere to do it. But they will look at those people, just like Ann Hopkins, to refer back to her, through a different lens, hold them to a different standard, more readily see them in a negative light. And that is discrimination. And if they turn around and fire them because they have less tolerance for certain traits or certain failures from that person because of their protected class status, why would we erect a presumption that says we don't think it is unless you show us something really strong? So that made no sense to me. And it's, again, this unspoken belief that, you know, bad people wouldn't do good things. Well, maybe they would for certain reasons. There's a host of reasons. Um, and then you have the, the, the counterpart to that that I've also written about. Good people frequently say bad things, which, again, it like doesn't make sense. Like everything is so you know, one or two dimensional and not real. And there I'm talking specifically about a doctrine called the strike comments doctrine. Under the strike comments doctrine, um, you can't really, when you're bringing a lawsuit for discrimination and the defendant is trying to have it dismissed before it goes to trial because the defendant is trying to show there's nothing here worth putting in front of a jury, the defendant can get a court to completely disregard some statements that the decision maker may have made or others may have made in the workplace that show bias against a group. Um, So what's the rule? The rule in a lot of jurisdictions is that unless that statement was made contemporaneous with the decision to fire or not demote or whatever the adverse action is, unless it was made right at the same time about the person at issue, the plaintiff, um, and by the decision maker directly, it's completely irrelevant. So if somebody made a joke about a protected class, let's say women, a nasty joke, that cannot be used to glean any insight into what might have gone on in a disputed decision later. Um, and I tell my students that thinking behind that is that Title VII is not supposed to operate with the courts being sort of thought police. And then if you make a comment on a bar stool on a Saturday night, it's not necessarily they, you know that the the thinking goes fair to have it come up seven years later in a totally different context and have you be judged because of it. But the truth is, sometimes an employment discrimination plaintiff doesn't have a lot to go on, and they're not privy to certain things that were thought or said at critical junctures. And while these comments may not be weighted heavily or given any regard by a trier, at least they could be they could be considered just to get the case in front of a jury. Because you do have some insight or some evidence that maybe this person does have a problem. This decision maker does have a problem with a particular protected class. And yet the doctrine says, no, we assume you're a really good person. And even if you said something, you know, whatever, we're just going to totally disregard it unless it was right on point. And it's that sort of blindness when it comes to what the plaintiff wants to introduce, juxtaposed with this openness that, no if you brought someone in who's a woman and you mentored her you could never fire her with any kind of sex discrimination in mind well you know it, it doesn't juxtapose it's um it, it it's dissonant. It it doesn't make sense it's asymmetrical
1: what is the message you would like to leave your reader with once they finish your book thank you so much for
0: asking that you have such great questions um I think the biggest message is that the glass ceiling's always been this intractable problem, right? We've always sort of referred to it. We've talked about it, that we have the women's liberation movement, first wave feminism, second wave feminism. We're still, when we look at the numbers, when we look at the representation, when we look at the you know pennies on the dollar, we're, it, it's, we're not there. The workplace equality has not yet been achieved. So something we're doing is not working. We have all these laws, and yet this idea, it, it's an abstraction, right? Um, We haven't achieved parity yet. I think the main message of my book is that maybe we can't achieve what we want to achieve because we're not able to confront the most insidious seeds of what's going on, which are these unspoken beliefs. And they can be held by the Wall Street middle manager who's next to you on the subway, and he'll never tell you. They could be held by a judge who may not even be aware that he or she is, is holding them, they could, be, they could lurk around in the zeitgeist. They can inhabit any one of us um, to some degree. And that the awareness that so much of what's going on, you could point out this failure, that failure, this interpretation is restrictive, and this doctrine doesn't make sense, and this law needs to be passed. But when you start to understand these various failures in terms of the beliefs that undergird them, the things we're not saying, by giving them voice, by aerating them, by putting them out there, and then confronting them, maybe that's our best shot at actually engaging with what's going on and moving the them.
1: Well, I've taken enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on?
0: Thank you so much. No, this has been an absolute honor. I'm thrilled and, and honored to be part of, of a podcast like this. I think your work is tremendous, and I, I'm very honored to be here today. I'm going to keep working on trying to look at what judges see when they look at cases, what lawmakers see when they enact laws, and whether the regulation of the workplace makes sense in terms of the realities of the workplace.
1: Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Again, we have been talking with Carolyn Stone, the author of Pains of the Glass Ceiling, The Unspoken Beliefs Behind the Laws, to help women thank you for being on the show thank you so much